Okay, well, we are uh, in our series in the book of Matthew. We're, we're going through the book of Matthew, and uh, man, we are, we are just learning what it, is, what it is like to watch Jesus in action. And that's what we're seeing. We're getting this firsthand experience of who Jesus is and what Jesus brings, and, and man, it is incredible. It is awesome. And Matthew, the guy who's writing all of this down, for him, it's more than just story. It's, it's his personal story. For Matthew, this thing is real because Jesus showed up when Matthew was in his sin and called him up out of it and gave him meaning and purpose and something truly powerful to live for, and it's a different kingdom. For Matthew, that's what he's emphasizing. It's a different kingdom. It's not the kingdom of self or the kingdom of Rome, which Matthew had been living for. It's the kingdom of God, and it's powerful, and Matthew is trying desperately to help us understand it and experience it, and it's amazing. And in this entire, uh, we've been going through this book for the last several months since the beginning of the year. And if you haven't, if you haven't jumped in, I really want to encourage you catch up online. All of these messages are building on each other, and man, there is a powerful, powerful theme that God is trying to communicate to us. And today really is a important day in it because it really comes down to this. It does come down to this message right here. Jesus is really driving some massive points home, and I'm excited to jump into that. Um, but before, I do want to set the stage a little bit, because what, what he's going to help us to understand is that God's will is not that we live with stress. God's will is that we don't live with stress. How many of you um, have ever been stressed out? Come on, just raise your hand if you've ever been stressed out, okay? Raise your... Some of you didn't raise your hand, and you are lying. You are lying. You're lying. Um, how, many of you, how many of you have been stressed out like this month already, October? You've been a little stressed, a little stressed. This week, you were a little stressed. Raise your hand. A little stressed. Oh, my goodness. How about today? A little stressed. Oh, my goodness. Crazy. <laughs> um, and, and, and that holds true according to the research. That holds true because uh, we, we are stressed out as a society. Uh, we have so many things. We're so blessed in so many ways, but we are stressed out, in fact, uh, in America, it, it actually causes health consequences. Um, uh, in, in the past month, 76% of adults have said they have had health impacts due to their stress levels. Things like headaches, things like fatigue, things like feeling nervous or anxious or depressed or sad. Some of you are like, I wasn't stressed before I came to church, but now you've made me stressed out, Scott. You're making me stressed out. Um, according to the American Psychological Association, um, adults have reported increases in, in the effects that stress has had on them. Things like neg negatively affecting their behavior, increasing tension in their bodies, causing them to snap out of anger. Come on, parents. Um, causing unexpected mood swings. Some people are relating to that. And the holidays are just around the corner. <laughs> family gatherings, family discussions around the Thanksgiving table. Some of you are already looking forward to it. You can't wait. Um, all of the gift giving and gift receiving and where are we going and who's going where and when's going what. It's like air traffic control, right? I, I'm planting seeds so you can get ahead of it. I'm planting seeds so you can get ahead of it. Um, it all can be very stressful. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that Jesus, want, it's a beautiful, beautiful way that Jesus walks us through from being 
disappointed and doubtful and stressed out to being built up. We actually see it right here in this passage. It's powerful, and it has everything to do with how you approach Jesus. So I want to set the stage for our conversation with that. How do you approach Jesus? Do you approach, there's two ways that you can approach him. You can approach him with pride, or you can approach him with humility. If you approach Jesus with pride, you're going to approach Jesus on what you can do, on what you can bring to the table, about your good works, your efforts, the things that you contribute to your faith. And if you do that, you're going to be stressed out because your faith is going to be about you. Your relationship with God is going to be about you because everything's all about you. But when it's all about you, you lose. You lose. But if you approach Jesus with humility, if you approach God with humility, with, a, with, a, with a, the idea of, God, I, I don't have it all figured out, and God, I am desperately in need of you to show up in my life, well, then God will, God will show up in your life, and you will walk away in, with grace and rest. You, if you approach God with pride that leads to performance, you'll be stressed. If you approach God with humility that leads to grace and rest, you will experience a blessing. You can say it another way. You can be illin' or you can be chillin'. Come on, somebody. Like, that's, you can just write that down. You can be illin' or you can be chillin'. God wants you to be chillin'. He does. Real rest. That's the title of today's message. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Real rest. That's what God wants to bring in your life. He wants real rest in your life. We're gonna see this in Matthew chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, if you have your phones, open up to Matthew chapter 11. I, I literally would love for you to follow along in your Bibles because I want you to see that we're literally gonna go verse by verse here and we're gonna see the, the theme and the context and how Jesus brings us from this very stressful situation ultimately where we can find real rest. It has everything to do with John the Baptist. It starts with John the Baptist. We talked about this last week. Okay, so if you missed it, make sure you go check that out because it, it will help you. He starts disappointed. John the Baptist, he's the greatest. Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest. He calls him the goat. How many know the goat is not Michael Jordan? I'm sorry. I know, I know that's offensive for some of you. It's not Michael Jordan. It's not Tom Brady even. Wow. Still? He's not even in the league anymore. The wounds go deep though, don't they, Chiefs fans? It's not even Muhammad Ali, although Muhammad Ali said he was the greatest. John the Baptist is the greatest. We looked at it last week. We're going to touch on it for just a second. And John the Baptist's whole mission in life was to point people to Jesus. Literally, he'd been prophesied about. He was a prophet who had been prophesied about. That's, that's rarefied air in the Bible. Rarefied air. And his whole mission was to help people look to Jesus. He was to point people to Jesus. And he did it right at the beginning of his ministry. He points people to Jesus, says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away from the sins of the world. He tells his disciples, hey, go ahead, go follow Jesus. That's cool. I'm willing, I'm willing to, to give up my disciples so that, that you can follow the true master, Jesus. Um, he baptizes Jesus, and he, and he says, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to baptize you. But Jesus is like, no, this needs to happen. And so he understands his place. He is fulfilling his role, and it's... It's powerful, but, but he finds himself in prison. Because he's in prison, he gets disappointed. Because the Messiah is not, in his mind, fulfilling what the Messiah had come to do, which was, in part, to set the captives free. So here's John in prison, and he's expecting Jesus to set him free, but, but he hasn't. And so he, his disappointment is leading to doubt, and his doubt is causing him to miss out. 
And so that's, that's where we pick up where we left off last week. And Jesus is going to take from that disappointment and doubtment. Uh, doubtment? Not a word. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> doubtment. Maybe it should be, though. Um, and he's going to lead him. He's going to lead him to a place of confidence. He's going to lead all of us to a place of confidence and joy and peace and rest. And it starts with Jesus. So if you're ready to jump into Matthew chapter 11, say, I am. Here we go. Yeah, love that. Verse 11 says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's right there, scripture. He calls him the goat. Um, Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? That's a little confusing. That's, what, what does that even mean? So here's what that's saying. John was the last prophet in a long line of prophets in the Old Testament who were pointing the way to the Messiah. So he's like the last one. I mean, prophets like Isaiah, Samuel, Micah, who are all talking about this Messiah who's going to come and and everything's going to change. And John is the last one of them. And they're all looking forward to this kingdom that this Messiah is going to bring. But when Jesus comes on scene, he shows us that he's not, bringing, he's not bringing a political revolution. He's not changing the government. He's changing the heart. He's bringing a spiritual revolution. And so what, what, what Jesus is bringing is a kingdom that is bigger than, than geographical boundaries. He's bringing a kingdom of the heart. And John the Baptist would ultimately die before that technically comes online because that doesn't come online until Jesus dies and is rose again. Sin is not atoned for. Uh, the, the kingdom doesn't truly open up completely until Jesus dies. And so, so John doesn't get to experience it. So Jesus is like, hey, listen, he's the greatest. There's no one greater. And yet the least in the kingdom of heaven, the one who receives the gospel by faith, is even better than he is. So that's what that means. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. If you stand for Jesus, people are gonna attack you. If you stand for Jesus, the enemy's gonna attack you. He's not just gonna sit idly by. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, watch this, very important. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. What's he mean there? There's a prophecy about, about one who would come like Elijah in the spirit of Elijah, who would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to their fathers, and that he would prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus is saying John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come, who was pointing the way to the Messiah, who was who? Jesus. He's usually the answer in church questions, just pro tip. Um, Rhetorical church questions, Jesus 95% of the time is the answer. He's pointing the way to Jesus. He's pointing the way to Jesus. And, and, and so he is the Elijah. Jesus is saying, whoever has ears, let him hear. So interesting. Jesus is saying, if you can accept this, if you can accept this truth that, that the time has come, that, that the time, that that the kingdom is now. That the thing that you have been waiting for and praying for and looking forward to is coming online right now and Jesus is the one who is bringing it online. Can you accept it? But the reason he has to ask that is because so many people couldn't accept it. 
So many people couldn't accept it. Jesus is literally doing miracles. He's literally speaking as no one has ever spoken before, ever. And he's right there, and he's walking, and he's talking, and he's doing these things. And people are like, nah, I don't think so. Not interested. They couldn't, they couldn't receive it. And, and so Jesus is like, can you receive it? Healing, miracles. People are like, nah, I'd just rather have my misery and pain. Life, hope, grace. No, I'd rather hold on to my works and my selfishness. That's exactly what is being, that's what Jesus is laying out right here. And, and the reality is, is people are fussy. I don't know if you knew this or not. <laughs> people are fickle. They're fussy. I know, it's shocking. It's shocking. And that's what Jesus is talking about. This is what, look, in this next passage, he's, he says, y'all are acting like little kids. Verse 16, to what can I compare this generation? He's like, let me tell you what you guys are like. Let me, let me think. How can I compare? Let me, let me find an illustration. He says, you're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. What are they talking about? Well, the, the pipe would be, they would play the pipe, and that would be for a wedding, and the dirge would be for a funeral. So he's basically saying like, hey, we, we all, the kids were getting together, and they're all like, hey, let's play wedding. You could be the, 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 the groom. You could be the bride. We can all, like, we can play a little pipe. We can act out this whole wedding thing. It would be great. And then there's this one kid. How many know there's one kid who doesn't want to do what everybody else is doing? Do you know there's always one kid? How many of you were that kid growing up? Just raise your hand. A few of you. These stubborn people. This stubborn. And he's like, furious. So we're like, let's play wedding. And one kid's like, I don't want to play wedding. Okay, um. Let's play funeral. I don't want to play funeral. Some people aren't ever happy. They just like being miserable. It's like the spirit of Eeyore comes all over them. <laughs> Nobody likes me. Everything's terrible. And no matter where they are, they'd be at Disney World. They'd be at Disney World and they're finding things wrong. The lines are too long. No duh, everybody wants to be here. You know, it's like, you know, the food isn't good. You know, I mean, you, you just, you know, you, they find something wrong everywhere they go. Let me just say this. What Jesus is trying to show us here is something powerful. And let this, let this hit, you, hit you if it needs to hit you. But the more religious you are, the more likely that will be the reality of your life. A critical spirit. A critical spirit. Critical spirit. Criticizing what's wrong instead of celebrating what's right. Now, I'm, I'm all for improvement. I'm all for let's make things better. But what is the essence of your spirit? Do you have a negative, critical spirit? Because that's what these people in Jesus' day had. They had a negative, critical spirit. And so, church, I just want to say this. We've got to be careful with that. We're going to see that Jesus He's gonna hit on this because if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves criticizing everything instead of enjoying the life that God wants to give us. Let's look at it in verse 18. And this is what he says, verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. So he's basically saying, John came, and when John showed up, he was like very monastic. He was very like, like, uh, he very rules-oriented. He's very, like, he was different. He was austere. He was weird. He was weird. He's in the middle of the wilderness, camel hair, honey, 
And so he's, he's different. He's set apart. And they're like, ah, anybody who's that on fire for God must be possessed by the devil. I mean, what? I mean, it's just, it's insane. But then he says, then the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, ah, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is like, (laughs) there's no pleasing you guys. There's no pleasing you guys. And he's like, you're not happy. And the reason you're not happy is because you're so focused on what you think the answer is. And you think the answer is you, more works, more rules, and it's stressing you out. It's stressing you out. He says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. He's like, listen, this stuff plays it out. If you'll just pay attention, you'll see how this goes. You'll see how this goes. Look at the verse 20. (laughs) Now, Jesus brings it here. (laughs) Uh, Jesus, Jesus punches them right in the face right here. All right, so watch this. Verse 20, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they didn't repent. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, two wicked cities in the Old Testament, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, oh, let me tell you, this is where Jesus did most of his ministry. He's like, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, no, no. You're going down to hell. That's what he says. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, most of us know the story of Sodom. God destroyed it because it was so wicked. It would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus takes these three ancient cities and he compares the cities that he had done ministry in. And so for the Old Old Testament cities, he picks the worst of the worst. So you think about like today, what, what cities would he pick? Maybe New York, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, New Orleans, Overland Park. It's wicked people. He's just looking for wicked people. He's just... It's, I know, it's cheap, but it's easy, and it feels good. <laughs> but he says, he says it will be better for them, it will be better for this, these places of wickedness than, at the judgment than, than the, the places at Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum, because they saw the miracles of Jesus firsthand. They heard the teaching of Jesus firsthand. He was right there. They saw him, and yet they looked to themselves and not to Jesus. They couldn't recognize what God was doing. We talk about this a lot, right? Vision is being able to see what God is doing, and they couldn't see it. They missed Jesus, and it's against this backdrop that Jesus prays this powerful and beautiful prayer. Look at this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. He says, they're acting like children, but you've revealed them to people who have the heart of a child, which is humble and learning. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Verse 27, all these things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. (laughs) Now, Jesus is getting very clear here. 
about who he is. He's calling Yahweh Father. He's calling the one who created heaven and earth Dad. And he's saying, he's the Father, I'm the Son, and the way that you experience the Father is through the Son. He is boldly declaring that he is the answer. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He'll do this, something similar to this in John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty exclusive. Pretty definitive. There's not a whole lot of like room for error or margin or like, I don't know if Jesus really was claiming to be God. Yes, he was. He was because he is. But here's something that's interesting that Jesus talks about as he's talking about the way to the Father. He uses this word in, in the relational term that he's talking about, he and the Father and us with him. He uses the word epigonosko. And it's, it's, a, Greek, it's a Greek word that, that talks about knowing and understanding and, and experiencing. So it's almost like he's saying, and, and he's using the word, the prefix epi to basically emphasize it. He's like, the way that you experience God is by, is by experiencing through experience, through a knowledge, through relationship. So he's basically saying, it's not about what you do, but it's about who you know. That's what he's saying. And, and, and watch where all of this knowing and experiencing and trusting leads to. It leads to rest. Verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that beautiful? We started this passage disappointed, doubting, frustrated, anxious, and Jesus is like, man, let me take all of that from you. I wanna take all of that from you, and if you will trust me in a knowing, relational, experiential sense, if you will, if you will look to me, if you will look to me, Jesus is saying, if you will look to me, you will experience real rest. I just want to, I want to encourage you. Some of you are stressed today. Some of you are worn out. Some of you are frustrated. Some of you are just, you're anxious. Jesus wants to give you real rest. And there's three thoughts that I want to key in on through this passage. Number one, the enemy will wear you down. And number two, Jesus will rest you up. And number three, the way to the rest of Jesus is through repentance, humility, and faith. It's very simple, and it's very powerful, and I want to walk through this together. So before we do, I want you to find four people, five people next to you and say, man, don't be illin', just be chillin'. Come on, find five people and say, don't be illin', just be chillin'. Number one, number one, the enemy will wear you down. The enemy will wear you down. Again, we see the enemy's work in John the Baptist at the beginning of this passage. He's disappointed, and so the enemy starts lying to him. Maybe he's not the Messiah. Maybe he's not the one who's actually come. Maybe you missed it, John. Maybe you're wrong. So send these disciples to ask Jesus, are you in fact the one? And that's what happens. 
And so he's disappointed. His disappointment leads to doubt. His doubt causes him to miss out, and it's the enemy's work. It's the enemy's work. And Jesus tells us, this is literally his mission, John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Whenever we start to see our faith being diminished, it's not the work of God. It's not the work of God. It's the work of the enemy. And he is constantly working on us. Ephesians chapter 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. For our struggle is not against flesh. Your struggle is not against your husband. Your struggle is not against your wife. It's not against your boss. It's not against your kids. Well, maybe a little bit. Um, No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's against the enemy. It's against the enemy of your souls. So when you start seeing yourself get worked up, start get discouraged, start wanting to throw in the towel, start being like, is any of this worth it? Should I keep going? Should I keep believing? You need to know that that is the enemy's work in your life and you are being attacked by the enemy. And you need to label that. Label that. And say, this is not God. This is not God. This is the enemy working. All this temptation, all this discouragement, this frustration, this angst, this anxiety, all that we are experiencing as a society that contributes to stress and is wearing us out is not God's will. We need to label it and we need to rebuke it. And there's four ways that this happens. There's four things that will bring you down, will wear you down. Number one, doubt will wear you down. Doubt will wear you down. So when you find yourself starting to doubt, Just be able to say, oh, man, that's not God. God doesn't want that for me. That's not God's will for me. When you get disappointed in life, know like that Jesus said you will have trouble. You will have disappointment. It's going to happen. Don't let that overwhelm you and get you to throw in the towel. But just label Say, I'm disappointed. We talked about this last week. I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm doubting right now. Don't let it take you out. Fear will wear you down. Fear will wear you down. That's how he works. That's how the enemy worked with John the Baptist. He got him disappointed. Then he caused him to be doubtful. And then he was fearful. Man, maybe I've missed it. Maybe I'm in the wrong spot. Maybe I've been doing this thing. Now I'm going to die. I'm in jail. They're going to kill me over something that's not even true. So the, the guy is acting all, out of, all sorts out of character because he was afraid. Let me tell you this. God's will is that you are not afraid. You can be bold. You can be strong. You can know that the Lord, thy God, is with you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. You can be strong. You can be confident because God is with you and he is going before you. So doubt will wear you down. Fear will wear you down. Sin will wear you down. Sin will wear you down. Anytime we give in to our sinful nature, it chips away at our spirit and it wears us down. Sin promises. It makes great promises, but it never delivers. Always leaves us disappointed. It promises relief, but it only makes things worse. That's why David will exhaustedly pray, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He's weighed down by it. He's constantly aware of it. Let me tell you this. Sin is not your solution. It will make things worse for you. 
and it will wear you down and you'll realize you're, de- you're, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're anxious, you're frustrated, you're scared. Giving sin only opens the door to the enemy's work in your life. But what is Jesus talking about primarily in this passage? I think he's talk- all of those things are true. But he's actually talking about how religion will wear you down. That's what he's talking about. Because what's the normative answer to the sin problem? Stop it. Do better. Follow the rules. That's what the religious leaders had done. And they were piling extra rules on people, making it hard for people to experience God. And let me just tell you this. It is impossible to find rest in religion. You can find routine. You can certainly find rules, but you will never find rest, not real rest. That can only be found in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. Man, this is so good, y'all. This is so good. The enemy will wear you down, but Jesus will rest you up. Rest up. That's what Jesus wants to do. Verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I love how Matthew 11 in the uh, the message paraphrase says this. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. This is Jesus speaking, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Everybody say real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace, and I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and... Man, if you're not living free and light, you're, then you've got some work to do. You've got some turning to do because you're, you're probably putting your, your focus and your energy and your hope in yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. But when you turn to him, he takes all of that, he takes all of that away. He just, he's like, just... Come to me, take, take the yoke upon me. Take my yoke upon you, rather. Most of us, um, any farmers in the room? I guess I should ask before I just assume. Any farmers in the room? Any farmers? A few farmers. Probably not many of the farmers that are in here using uh, old school yokes that you put on oxen to, to plow your fields. Um, that's, that's, a foreign, that's a foreign concept for us. So I have a little illustration. I have a little picture. Here's a picture of what this looks like. It's cute. Yeah, it is cute. It's very cute. This is, this is a, a pair of oxen pulling a plow, and clearly one is doing more work than the other. <laughs> this analogy is not perfect because, you know, you can say, well, Jesus is the one that's doing most of the work, and we're doing some of the work. But actually, that's, that's not what's happening. That's not, that's not the illustration. The illustration is the little ones on Jesus' back. <laughs> You and I are on, like, he's literally doing the heavy lifting. He's doing the pulling. And it's interesting that Jesus would use the yoke as an idea, a wooden beam across, across someone's back. Because how many of you know Jesus would carry the yoke? He would carry the yoke that we couldn't carry for ourselves. He would carry a cross. He would die on a cross. And he wouldn't stay dead. He would resurrect. He would take our sin for us and from us. And he would once and for all make us right with God, giving us access to the Father. 
Our sin separates us, but our Savior makes a way for us, and the result is rest. Come on. Let's praise the Lord. Isn't he worthy? He's worthy. Okay, good news. How do we experience it, though? The way to the rest of Jesus is through humility, repentance, and faith. Matthew 11 says, if you are willing to accept it, if you're willing to accept it, whoever has ears, let him hear. Who can, he, who can hear? The one who is willing to hear. If you come to God like a child, simplicity of faith, saying, God, this, you know what? I've tried my own way. I've done my own thing. It hasn't worked for me. So in humility, I'm going to choose to believe that, that you could be, that you could have revealed yourself in Jesus Christ. That simple, that simple act of humility now opens up a second opportunity, and that's, a, that's an opportunity for repentance. Humility leads to repentance. And, and all of a sudden you say, God, I'm willing to acknowledge that you can move in my life and I'm willing to say that my way is not the way, the world's way is not the way, but I'm gonna turn from all of that and I'm gonna turn towards you. That's what repentance is. It's turning from finding my identity, finding my strength, finding my answers in me and what I bring to the table, turning from that and turning towards God. But it's not just a one-time thing, although it definitely happens, it needs to happen at salvation, but it's not a one-time thing, it's an ongoing thing. Repentance, confession and repentance should be regular in the life of a believer. That's why we talk about this all the time, we're not a perfect church, because we want everybody to understand that once you start, don't, don't act like a Christian. Just be one, just be one. And none of us are perfect. We're just figuring this stuff out. We're just, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to be like that anymore. I'm moving towards you. God, I'm sorry. I, I said that. I sh- God, I don't want to be like that anymore. I'm moving towards you. We are an imperfect church on an imperfect journey, but we in the grace, by the grace of God, are moving towards our perfect heavenly Father, and he is doing a perfect work inside of us by faith, by faith, humility, repentance, then faith. Faith in what? Faith in yourself? That's what the world says, doesn't it? Just look down deep. Just believe. And find just a little bit of hope. How many times, how many know like you can look down deep and you don't find much? <laughs> I keep looking. I'm just more discouraged. God doesn't tell you. God doesn't give you Walt Disney type of faith. He said, don't just believe in yourself. Believe in God. Don't believe in the world. Don't believe in the world's philosophy. Don't be surprised when the world lets you down. No. Believe in the grace of God. Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Everything good we experience, we experience by faith. You have to be humble enough to believe that there is a God and it's not you. 
and that he revealed himself through Jesus Christ, his son. And in that simple act of faith, you can have a relationship. Epigonosco, you can have a, an experience of relationship with God that fundamentally changes everything about you, changes you from the inside out. All of a sudden, your desires start changing. All of a sudden, you, you stop wanting what you used to want. That's, those things become less and less and less and less. You still got issues, but God's changing you through relationship. We don't do things, we don't do good things to get to God. We do good things because God has gotten to us by grace through faith. That's what this whole thing is about. And when we do that for real, we find a real rest.